welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Will Van Der Veer, MD. He's the co-founder of the Integrative Psychiatry Institute, uh, and you're coming to us uh, from Boulder in Colorado. Uh, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Great to be here. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. So I'd, li- I'd like to I guess start with some just some basic distinctions for people who are sort of broadly under unfamiliar with you know what we're going to get into today. So like, what's the difference? I don't know. This is going to be super basic for you, but like, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? And then what do we mean by integrative psychiatry? Uh, maybe we could we could start there. That sounds great. It's good to define the terms from the beginning. So a psychologist is someone who goes to graduate school. Um, typically pursues at least a master's degree, more commonly a PhD. So it's a a very different academic path to become a psychologist. And uh, the big distinction is that psychologists provide psychotherapy, talk therapy, typically. And a psychiatrist uh, goes to medical school, um, learns the basics of medicine, delivering babies, uh, cutting up cadavers to understand anatomy, um, and moves up through specialization and learns a lot about medication prescribing for uh, the conditions that a psychiatrist sees, like depression, anxiety, and so forth. So uh, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, and a psychologist is uh, a usually a counselor, or they can also go into research um, and become someone who is involved more in, on the research side than the clinical side. Right. And then, and so, so the the psychiatrist has a medical background and also has this ability to prescribe. And then, and then, what's the integrative psychiatry? So, thank you for reminding me. So, integrative psychiatry is a um, is a broadening of the vision of what the practice of psychiatry is about. And so, one of the critiques, which I think is valid, about my field, psychiatry is that we've um, become reductionistic and we look at illness as uh, a collection of symptoms that people present to us when they come uh, with their suffering for help. And we focus too much on medication. So uh, the typical conversation with a psychiatrist is very short. Uh, It's it's not rich in uh, trying to understand the full person. And uh, the prescription pad is pulled out very quickly. So integrative psychiatry offers um, people coming for help a much wider opportunity of looking at the different areas that might be contributing to their suffering, Uh, looking at spiritual dimensions of suffering, looking at uh, a broadened view of of physical symptom, physical uh, causes of problems looking at the gut-brain connection, looking at hormone imbalances, potentially looking at infections, looking at detoxification pathways, uh, looking at toxic relationships in the person's life. So it's a a much broader view. And um, so the tools also are broader in integrative psychiatry. So we might use supplements or vitamins that are shown in research to be effective as alternatives to medications. Um, and then finally, the distinction between integrative psychiatry and ordinary psychiatry is that the practitioner is really looking to resolve the root causes of the condition and not just 
control symptoms. Controlling symptoms is part of integrative psychiatry, but we think that if your approach to a patient is only limited to symptom suppression, uh, you're not really helping someone get to the bottom of the problem. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, very attractive to me, you know, as a, as a topic to get into today. And I hope for our listeners, but also, you know, born out in my own experience than in what's made the difference in terms of me resolving the, the mental health issues that I've had has been going to the source, unpicking and unpicking um, to where some of these uh, patterns in my life got their start. And um, I'm working at that level and particularly on, on trauma resolution, which I know is something you, you also talk about. So yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for defining the, the terms like that. And, and I guess what, what also piqued my interest is it, it sort of feels exotic is that you're, um, you know, using psychedelics in, in the therapy. So that's, um, yeah, so that's something that you know, I'd, I'd love to get into. And just, just sort of out of interest then, how are inter- integrative psychiatrists um, viewed by the rest of the profession? Like, and, and did you, you know, what was your transition, presumably at some point from a, a normal psychiatrist into an uh, integrative psychiatrist? Well, it's, um, it's interesting that uh, the field seems to be divided somewhat into two groups in conventional psychiatry. There are people who are very uh, stout defenders of the approach that only a double-blind placebo-controlled trial should be relied on to uh, make treatment decisions. Um, and those people stick very closely to how they were trained and, uh, they do a lot of prescribing typically. And then there's a group of people who, uh, are very discouraged and burnt out as a practitioner of conventional psychiatry because they perceive that the efforts that they're making are not effective enough. And they don't even feel really that fulfilled as a healer, uh, being, um, reduced to a medication prescriber and carrying too many patients on their caseload and fighting with insurance companies over here in the U.S. for reimbursement and so forth and so on. So the people who are in pain, who trained in the way that I was trained, uh, are quite open to a renewal of their passion for practicing medicine. Uh, But there are also people We were at the American Psychiatric Association meeting in San Francisco a couple of years ago with a table, an integrative psychiatry table, and we had psychiatrists coming up to us asking the question, what is integrative psychiatry? And so there's there's a wide range of of different responses. Right. And and what you what got you started on this path, or or was it something you, you sort of always had this more holistic interest? Well, I started in college studying um, anthropology and psychology, and I was really interested in how indigenous cultures handled problems, uh, how tribal cultures um, in Africa and the South uh, Pacific actually handled uh, issues. And what I started reading was these accounts uh, of how ritual was used uh, all over the world to resolve problems that individuals and groups were having. And uh, then somehow I ended up in medical school (laughs) and got really excited in uh, learning about the body, all the physiologic pathways. And but I was more than anything else committed to creating a career where I got to talk to people and had enough time to get to know them. And when I looked around at the different careers, that was a big part of my 
um, decision was, am I going to have time to really get to know people? So psychiatry was uh, really the only place where I could tell that I could have some kind of control over that. Uh, so during medical school and residency, I got very involved in the traditional training and uh, excited about medications and talk therapy. And as soon as I graduated and became board certified in psychiatry, I started, I started a private practice and pretty quickly I had people building up in my practice who weren't responding to the kinds of psychotherapy that I knew how to provide and the medications. And I found myself beginning to go on this carousel of different medication changes. Oh, you know, Prozac didn't help you. Let's try Effexor or maybe Wellbutrin or whatever. And it just was very discouraging to see people continue to really suffer and not respond to medications or therapy. So um, I was so discouraged and um, despairing that I quit my career and I went into wow. a kind of um, dark night of the soul and uh, moved to a uh, meditation community where I sat and meditated all day for a year, essentially. Wow. And during that time, it dawned on me that uh, I loved working with people in a healing context, and it was incredibly meaningful and uh, such a privilege to, to get to do that. And I wanted to do that, but I needed better tools. So I came back and started learning about the gut-brain connection and uh, measuring and adjusting and balancing hormones. And that led into uh, looking more deeply at genetic variations and vulnerabilities and that led into more understanding about alternatives to medications and just diving deep into the literature, which is quite ample, actually. When you start looking, um, there's plenty of research looking at different alternatives to medications and also learning about nutritional deficiencies and diet and uh, the role of exercise. So I renewed my own uh, passion and hope for practicing. Um, that was about 15 years ago. And then uh, around the same time, uh, I noticed that my meditation practice was helping me in my relationship with myself to some degree. But this deep meditation practice, uh, I mean, I probably, it's probably a year altogether in, in retreat uh, over, I'm talking about solitary retreat um, over the years, really felt very beautiful in the healing of my relationship with myself, but it didn't help my relationships with other people. And my marriage was still an absolute disaster. And uh, so I started um, considering maybe meditation is not enough for me to get well. And at that time, I didn't even really understand that I had a lot of trauma in my childhood. Um, but a friend of mine uh, from my Buddhist community invited me to an ayahuasca ceremony. And um, it was so profound, uh, the shift in, in my being. And when I came home from the ceremony, my wife said, what happened to you? You're a different person. And that was the beginning of uh, a deeper uh, exploration of traditional uh, South American plant medicine uh, as, a, as a way of, uh, through my own healing. Um, the other thing that happened was I, I trained with Peter Levine in somatic experiencing, and I started providing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Oh, Love Peter. Uh, what a genius. Uh, beautiful soul. Um, so generous. So um, shortly after that, uh, I met Gabor Mate, and uh, Gabor and I 
uh, have become uh, deep friends and uh, have have had a lot of experiences um, around uh, healing with plant medicine. And so the I guess coming back to your question of was I always uh, this more holistic minded person, I think deep down, I probably was. But during my medical training and residency, I, I gained great hope, which turned into great despair when I <laughs> realized how limited the tools were of Western medicine in a conventional narrow uh, definition within psychiatry. Yeah. Wow. So there's, a, there's an awful lot there. Um, and that's, thank you for being so open as well, you know, about, about, um, you know, your own, own trauma. I, I'm interested in the, in the ceremony and, and for people who, again, that may be an unfamiliar term, like, so, so what is our ayahuasca? Like, how does the ceremony work? And, and what was your experience of, of that? If you could share a little detail. So I, I guess I want to start by making a disclaimer that, um, there are a lot of, at least over here in the U.S., I don't know how what's happening in the U.K., but there, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people who are sort of the self-appointed, I call them backyard shamans, who are running ceremonies without much training, uh, and in some cases without any lineage whatsoever. And I think uh, it endangers people often. Um, people... Uh, come in with high hopes um, or maybe fantasies that something is going to shift that's profound and lasting for them. So uh, my perception was that I wanted to only sit with someone who had been deeply trained uh, by traditional indigenous folks. So, um, so I went to South America to sit in ceremonies and um, Obviously, going to South America is a big push, and it's expensive, and not everyone can do that. And it's a privilege to be able to afford that. But I think that the risk of um, working with someone who's inexperienced or who hasn't been mentored adequately is is significant. And I've had plenty of patients who needed a lot of treatment for trauma from entering into ceremonial space with uh, facilitators who weren't prepared, uh, adequately. So I just wanted to say that up front. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, um, the plant medicine part of my life journey, I think overall really, um, connected me more deeply to the earth and to, and my, my sense of connection with the earth and the universe was deeply altered by sitting in ceremony, including my relationship with plants and animals and other humans. Um, and, but there was also this need for a deeper healing of trauma with a, with a facilitator, as in a uh, somatic experiencing therapist for me. So again, I guess, I guess I could say that overall, the arc of my life has been looking for healing for, for myself and others from trauma and diving deeply into different traditions. At one point, I thought I was going and I approached uh, the shaman I was working with in South America about becoming an apprentice. Um, so I've had these periods of time where um, I went deeply into Tibetan Buddhism and became a meditation instructor and thought I was going to go down that road and then uh, shamanism. And no, that's not it. Um, 
So for me, it's been relational healing that's been the most uh, powerful and helpful for me in a somatic orientation by doing my own trauma sessions with a somatic experiencing practitioner. Right. And so, so to help me understand it then, so, so the, the ceremony that you did allowed you to connect more with, with the earth, with plants, with, with, with other human beings, but did it also point you to this need to do the deeper trauma work? Is, is, is that what happened? It was happening um, alongside of my training with Peter Levine and, okay. and at the same time in my life. And it's funny how you think, you think you're going to a training to learn a tool to help another person. And lo and behold, you're the one who needs the help. <laughs> so uh, it's one of the beautiful things about uh, psychotherapy training is you, you, you get to have such a journey of healing uh, on your own behalf so that you can be more effective as a healer for others. So, um, so I, I think to answer your question, there was this um, disconnection out of trauma from my feeling of being a part of the universe or being a part of the earth, uh, being a part of the human community, a lot of uh, distance there that very much I feel like was healed by the plant medicine. But there was also this um, fear and anxiety and stress and trauma around interpersonal relationships that um, I think that plant medicine helped to some degree, but I think that the somatic experiencing work had um, ultimately more uh, of a payoff for me. Uh, and, and part of that, I think, is um, having this one-on-one -on -one, uh, healing relationship, which is different from the traditional ceremonies that I sat in in South America, where there are uh, is a circle of people who each person is having their own experience and there is help. If you're in a terrible situation, you can ask for help, but more or less you're relating to your own experience. So a little bit later, I, um, found uh, someone, uh, invited me to consider uh, working on a maps MDMA study. As a, as a study physician, that was a study that was getting started here in Boulder. This is about 10 years ago. And it dawned on me that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy could be a blend of these two approaches where you have a psychedelic experience. You could make the argument that psychedelic is not the word to describe an MDMA experience, but you have a non-ordinary state experience and you have a therapist right there with you, helping you reorganize your sense of self. Um, and so I took the opportunity and became an MDMA assisted therapist on this clinical trial we did here. And to me, that was, uh, it was incredible to see how fast people could get well and how durable their, the benefits that they received from their participation could be. Uh, so it was kind of this marriage of, um, uh, non-ordinary state healing, but facilitated uh, very carefully by a, uh, an experienced healer that kind of shifted my perspective about these two worlds that I was living in, where at that point, it wasn't all that integrated yet between psychedelics and, you know, my kind of spiritual path and integrative medicine. And so participating in that study really helped bring those two things together for me. Yeah. Yeah. And 
And I, how, so how does that work when you're in an altered state and you're also receiving, you know, a th- a th- you know therapy and, and being guided? Um, I guess there's a little bit of part of me that sounds like isn't, isn't being in the altered state kind of enough already, let alone now diving into therapy. So, so yeah, can you, can you describe a little bit, what, you know, what that experience is like and then how, how it helped you to heal? Great question. Well, I, I meet a lot of people uh, who have used psychedelics in a social context, recreational context, without the view that they're taking the medicine in order to heal something. And in general, it seems like those people are, have a, they may have a little more psychological flexibility than a person who hasn't used psychedelics um, as a general sort of terrible generalization to make. Uh, but they can often have uh, a lot of unresolved psychological challenges in the form of unresolved trauma, uh, the form of unresolved depression, anxiety, insomnia. Uh, neurosis, whatever they're dealing with, because they haven't tackled their psychological challenges inside of the non-ordinary state. So it doesn't look to me like psychedelics without a guide and without the intentionality has much of an impact on a person's sense of self or their, their personality, where they're trying to go with their life. Um, there are exceptions to that. I mean, to, to any generalization, but um, having a guide and using the psychedelic experience with the intentionality of healing is a completely different experience uh, from using psychedelics in a more uh, casual or social framework. Yeah. So what happens inside of a psychedelic healing session with a guide is very different very different. At our clinic, we, we treat um, people with more severe depression, with suicidal thinking and, and PTSD and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's, it's quite remarkable how I think uh, this kind of approach accelerates the journey of healing uh, faster than the kind of approach I was taking for a couple of decades before I started offering this kind of work in our clinic. Right. Right, and that was the the somatic work that you were doing. But you found right. that once you once you did that, that well, when you did a combined approach of the therapy with the psychedelics, it, it accelerated your healing. Is, is that right? Well, I think that um, yes, and I think that the um, the study that I participated in uh, showed me that uh, people with very severe long-term challenges with depression and PTSD could be uh, rapidly shifted and maintained in a new direction. Um, you know, in our study, the average number of years of suffering was more than 19 years of, of uh, symptoms that people were having. Uh, we had people who had had hundreds of therapy sessions. One person had over a thousand therapy hours. Um, before entering a study without much result to show for it. So it's, um, it's a challenging global epidemic and a big problem that people, too many people don't respond to the currently approved treatments for depression and PTSD. So that's where the psychedelic therapy is really coming in 
as an alternative that that looks very promising thus far in the research. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, I've probably got <laughs> multiple thousand. Probably, if I count the hours of therapy I've had, it's probably over a thousand. But I have made huge leaps forward. But it's intriguing for me to think that I've done that even faster. Um, but I'm, but I'm also fascinated by the experience because I've never taken psychedelics. So I'm here, I'm sort of trying to work it out in my head and thinking, well, I'm there with a therapist, you know, and this is going to be a very crude characterization of maybe stereotypical and, you know, the, the plants turning into an octopus and the, the wallpaper looks like the sea <laughs> and there's a monster coming to me. Um, I, I'm sort of imagining myself in that state. And then how does the therapist help in all of this? Like, just, I'm just kind of eager to understand a little bit about right. that. That's a great question. Yeah. As you said, you know, isn't the not ordinary state enough in and of itself to navigate? (laughs) And now you have someone (laughs) to try to relate to in the midst of it. Um, So I think we need to make a distinction between different psychedelics here because uh, in the U.S., uh, ketamine for psychotherapy in a medical context is the only psychedelic we have available that's not illegal at the moment. So um, ketamine is in a category of dissociative uh, drugs. So a dissociative is quite different from kind of what you're describing as more of a classical psychedelic experience. Not to say that people don't have visual um, distortions or hallucinations on ketamine. It can happen. Um, But uh, LSD and psilocybin and uh, ayahuasca traditional psychedelics Um, tend to be more visual in the experience that the person is having. Um, So I could speak to each individually in terms of what we know about uh, what, you know, what to expect in the experience. Uh, I will say that MDMA is also not traditionally by neuroscientists anyway, considered a psychedelic. It's some people call it an entheogen or, you know, God revealing uh, spirit revealing uh, medicine. It's, way less psychedelic in the sense of uh, producing visual or auditory uh, experiences, distortions. But MDMA seems to be uh, particularly well-suited for the resolution of trauma because it uh, elevates a hormone called oxytocin that is very useful for um, increasing interpersonal um, trust, uh, while at the same time, helping people to get in touch with uh, the parts of themselves that have not received uh, adequate healing inside of them. Uh, And that comes with the support of of the guides, uh, helping them navigate that space. So with MDMA-assisted therapy, it it, it isn't so much like, you know, the wallpaper is melting, uh, like that kind of experience. Um, people with severe trauma in an MDMA assisted therapy session tend to feel a lot less fear, um, and, uh, tend to immediately, uh, become aware of the parts of themselves that haven't, that have been fragmented and need to be reassociated in order to be well. Um, so each, each one of these compounds is different and, and the experience that you have, uh, with a guide will be different. Um, but one of the reasons why we're, we're running a large, large uh, psychedelic assisted therapy training for therapists right now, um, and we're about to start another cohort in January, 
is that the approach in therapy is very different in psychedelic therapy from ordinary therapy. Ordinary therapy, most often, unless you're practicing somatic therapy, which is still kind of new, um, consists of a lot of talking. And if you're on a psychedelic, uh, most of the time, talking is not something that is the best tool to be using. The somatic approaches uh, tend to blend a lot better with a psychedelic therapy session. There's a whole deep conversation we could have over hours about the nuances of that. But the, the role of the therapist in a psychedelic therapy session is much more subtle and nuanced. And the phenomenon of client-centered therapy or not getting in front of the, of the client with the healing process and using uh, talking to a minimum is um, kind of more of a, a general headline of, of the approach. There's a lot more to it than that, but it's, it's not so much that you're on a psychedelic and you're having to now deal with someone who's trying to have a conversation with you. In other words. <laughs> Tell me about what it was like when you were five whilst you wanted to pipe a belt. Right. I get it's, it's not that right. Yeah. 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 The, um, the talking part of the brain is not as well uh, illuminated or well perfused with blood flow in those states. Um, and, you know, we know about trauma that most of the trouble in trauma is actually uh, what we call infratentorial. So it's underneath the tentorium, it's below the conscious part of the brain is where in the amygdala and the fight or flight system of the brain is where we hold the dysregulation of trauma. So this is one of the reasons why talk therapy can take a long time if, if it ever produces the results uh, for people to heal from trauma is that the talk therapy oftentimes is dealing with the top part of the brain. Top part of my brain is talking to the top part of your brain, uh, but the lower parts of the brain where the, this uh, intensity of, of fear and reactivity is held uh, sometimes doesn't get um, tapped into or addressed. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and that resonates with me. Like I, I started off doing sort of talk therapy, but moved towards a much more somatic approach, which was, which is primal therapy. And I know there's a lot of baggage associated with the, that, but it, to certainly my experience of it has been somatic. And um, again, there's not a lot of talking by the therapist. It's a few questions. Sometimes the therapist won't speak for, you know, virtually the entire session, right? So, so that resonates. But what's interesting to me is because I've never tried it whilst also um, using a psychedelic is whether or not I could have reached, got deeper, quicker, or, you know, mm-hmm worked with the pain, you know, that I needed to resolve for long. I mean, yeah, that's, that's very in, intriguing and, and interesting that, you know, you're, you're experimenting there and, and you've clearly got the results that you're describing. Well, I, I want to just add a little nuance to, you know, this concept of faster, um, faster resolution or faster healing. And, you know, it's, um, it's tricky because, I know from my own experience of, of trauma and suffering, you, you want relief and you want it right now. And the promise of psychedelic therapy is that we can, I mean, especially with the data that's emerging on MDMA therapy, it looks like we can resolve PTSD and we can uh, see that people maintain being symptom-free or being in resolution, or you could even say a cure the word cure appeared in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Association in an article a, a couple of years ago about MDMA-assisted therapy. And the word cure is very 
intense in medicine to say that word, especially in psychiatry, because psychiatry is so much about suppressing symptoms and not ever resolving the root of the issue. So um, to be able to get to a full resolution that's durable is kind of the holy grail of what we would all want for our patients to have them be able to leave our care and go and thrive in the world. Um, but uh, there are many um, cases where this promise of faster resolution uh, actually doesn't pan out. So uh, where a person has a very challenging experience on a psychedelic in a therapy session, and it could take weeks or months to integrate that experience. And so um, I just, I just want to um, kind of temper the enthusiasm uh, for these new tools by bringing that sober voice to the conversation that it doesn't always work out as planned. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's great that you, yeah, you, you put in that caveat. Um, yeah, yeah, but, but you're right. You know, I guess but especially those of us who've started to walk the path in resolving our trauma, it's like, you know, there's still a bit of me that, oh, you know, is, is there something, is there some method I haven't yet explored that might, that might get me to the resolution even quicker and we sort of, you know, we still have to recognize that this is a, um, yeah, a process that takes time. Yeah. Yes. And there is no, whilst this might help, I guess, I, I guess what you're saying is that there is no, we've so far, we've not discovered, you know, a magic pill, um, yeah. that can, you know, cure you in a session, right. Or right. And there, there's, there's so much work to do after a psychedelic therapy experience to integrate the changes. And to me, that's why it's so important to think about integrative medicine as a part of the integration from a psychedelic healing session. In other words, I've had um, people I worked with who we provided ketamine assisted therapy to at our clinic who had a dramatic uh, decrease in their symptoms from depression, but who um, for all kinds of different circumstances uh, continued to act in the same ways around the essential behaviors that we need to have to be well, uh, not exercising or not changing what they eat or not changing their habits around bedtime and sleep hygiene, um, or not being able to change toxic relationships in their lives. These are the, can be drivers of depression, right? And so the behavior changes that are necessary after receiving benefits from a psychedelic healing session are difficult to make. And, and those things can take time and there can be two steps forward and one step back. But to your point about the magic pill, you know, we, we, we all would like to, to live in the fantasy that that could happen for us. You know, even if we disavow it consciously, unconsciously, we would love to have that, you know, faster yeah, yeah. way around the obstacle rather than going through it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, no, that's right. And, and that's interesting because we, we've, we've focused the conversation on trauma resolution, resolution, but you're making, you know, another important po point here is that that needs to be supported by, um, you know, a broader, you know, view of, I guess, of healing. And that's not just the, the trauma, but it's, it's the environment that you live in, right? It's, it's, it's altering that. Right. And, and the lives, and again, speaking from personal experience, the, the life that we've created 
with trauma as a core energy inside of us is a life that reinforces the trauma and the way people relate to us also needs to change and people may not be used to that may not be used to the new person that we're becoming through our healing process and so there's all kinds of remodeling that has to happen that's uh, challenging to 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 re uh rebuild um a life that's not all around uh protecting us from the retriggering of traumatic energy in our system right right um and and that includes nutrition i mean and i know on, on the website you talk about you know lifestyle in general are there other other aspects of lifestyle that you you work with your do you call them patients or do you call them clients or like what's it, you know what's the, the doctor i still call them patients um right uh yeah yeah so there are different elements of lifestyle and in in my mind the categories of uh attention uh clinical attention or lifestyle uh, the body and the mind uh, and then the spirit so um Inside of lifestyle, we talk about uh, sleep, exercise, diet, relationships, and addictions or habits, compulsive habits, which includes, um, you know, the overuse of screens and, uh, you know, um, watching overstimulating content on your laptop or your tablet or your phone right up until you fall asleep. Um, sleep, sleep is huge. And... Um, it's an epidemic, uh, the problems with inadequate duration of sleep and also inadequate uh, patterns of healthy sleep. And, you know, it's also not well known enough amongst practitioners that seriously problems like obstructive sleep apnea are incredibly common. About a quarter of men in the U.S. are estimated to have that, about 10% of women. So um, this is a major uh, sort of silent epidemic that is driving a lot of uh, what psychiatrists would call treatment resistance or, you know, the failure to respond to conventional approaches. Uh, it's, it's one of those elephants in the room that doesn't get enough attention. Right, right. And if, if CEP is so huge, then what, what are the measures you tend to take or the recommendations you tend to make to, to your patients in order to improve sleep? Well, I send a lot of people for uh, a sleep study, um, an overnight, it's called an overnight oximetry study where you, a polysomnogram where you go into a lab and they wire you up and they measure your oxygen saturation. And it's quite impressive how frequent the diagnosis of sleep apnea comes back from those uh, studies. The other thing that's emerging that's kind of fun is uh, technologies like this uh, ring, it's called an aura ring which um, gives you information in the morning of how many minutes you slept, um, how much time you spent in each of the four sleep phases. The sleep phases data is not as accurate yet, but um, the amount of time sleeping is, is pretty accurate with this device. So wearable technology, I think, is going to help us in the future uh, more and more to track outcomes and to uh, really work with our patients to develop better habits. It, it helped me a lot when I saw how uh, poor my sleep was. And so having the accountability of looking at the app in the morning and seeing my sleep score really helps me uh, move forward with better habits. 
And I like that answer to the question because really you're pointing to putting the, the accountability on on your patient to a large degree, right? And letting them see the data and and presumably then working out for themselves, they'll start to spot patterns of like when they're getting better sleep versus right. you know, poor sleep. Is that is that a principle here that you know you're working with? Absolutely. I think it's uh it's disempowering to have it the other way around and have the doctor be the, you know almighty source of all wisdom and knowledge and, you know, for the patient to be sort of this, uh, mendicant who's, uh, hoping for, uh, being treated, uh, fairly and nicely, but not, um, taking charge of, uh, becoming, um, well-informed and, and using the physician as a, a sort of, um, mentor or a coach or teacher, uh, who can give you the information you need, but there's a lot of um, behavioral change that's critical that uh, is not going to happen inside the clinic. Um, the conversations yeah. about what the data shows and what the information is that the patient needs, of course, will happen there. But um, I, I used to study with a, a Zen teacher who would say um, on the last day of the retreat, okay, now the retreat begins. It's, it's kind of a similar phenomenon with, the doctor where now the healing begins, like you've, you've spent time with the healer and now it's time to integrate and change your behavior so that you can have lasting wellness. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the idea of the, the medical man or woman as, as coach. Um, and, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like the, the biggest breakthroughs I've had in fact, maybe all the breakthroughs I've had in my own health has been when I've taken accountability and had someone effectively coaching me, you know, through a process of my own self-healing. Yeah. Yeah. And that Chris, makes a lot um, of in your, in your journey with healing trauma was, were you aware that there was trauma to be healed, um, relatively early in your life or did that come later for you? Uh, it came, <clears throat> yeah, I distinctly remember it came a bit later. So I was in my late twenties. I remember putting on a, a charity barn dance, right? And uh, yes, yeah, it's part of this project I was doing on a self-development program. And uh, I, I, the money went to an organization in the UK called the NSPCC, uh, the National Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Children. And my rationale for this money going to that charity was, I, you know, I had this wonderful childhood. And, uh, you know, I just wish, you know, other people could have such you know, a <laughs> wonderful childhood like I have. And so I'm going to give this money to this charity that, so they can help that to to happen. So I was in complete denial, you know, that there were any issues in my childhood, um, you know, all the way through my twenties. It wasn't until I, uh, well, I first quit alcohol was the first move I made. And then, you know, of course, not of course, but what happened to me was, you know, once I'd stopped that, you know, I, all sorts of, you know, emotions came up and lots of rage was coming up, which, uh, seemed to be way, way beyond just any alcohol withdrawal. And, you know, so mm. then I was like, okay, there must be something deeper here. And, and, and as I was moving in those circles of recovery, you know, like we were sort of passing around book recommendations. And mm. I, first of all, I think read John Bradshaw homecoming, which is, you know, where he talks about the inner child. And so, yeah, so I started my journey on, mm. okay, maybe there was some, <laughs> maybe it wasn't all rosy, you know, my childhood <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So I was, so to answer your question, no, I wasn't aware that there was any trauma. And also because my, the major aspect of my trauma was actually my birth. Um, 
you know, that took a while to uncover, you know, in it, and I, I kind of knew I was four steps delivery, um, but I'd never really related to that as being traumatic and until I started to do my reading. And then, and then I started to allow myself to feel some of that, you know, very early pain and, um, and accept that that was where it was from. It was from my birth. And, and that, you know, once I started to feel into that, that really kick-started the very deep work. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah it's interesting how um, within medicine, we don't account for how traumatic birth can be, you know? I mean, it's still, even inside of um, circles of, of trauma-informed uh, folks, there's not a lot of focus on the actual birth experience yet. Mm. I, I mean, there, I know people who specialize in that, but it's, it's few and far between that, that you find someone who really pays attention to that process, which is a life yeah. and death process, right? Yeah. I mean, people die on the way out of the birth canal and mothers die as well. And sometimes both parties die. I mean, it's, it's a serious uh, passage. It's, yeah. Uh, not recognized enough. No, and there's and there's very good. I mean, one of the one of the early this um, yeah early pieces of the information pieces of information that I discovered that had me started to take it seriously was reading the studies on suicide rates. So there's a very strong correlation between complications in birth and and not just suicide but violent suicide. Wow. Um, and and the belief the belief is there that these are people try you know that they, they they're trying to uh resolve that deep pain uh and in the process end up killing themselves but it's um yeah so that that had me start to take it seriously right okay that this yeah this correlation probably exists oh. for a reason and then, you know and then and then actually directly starting to feel some of the pain and then you know kind of consolidated um you know my uh, you know understanding that yeah there was something serious here and i needed to look at it and, and fortunately i again similar to you i was in a privileged position you know to to get on a plane and go to you know santa monica and spend months at a time beating cushions and screaming and crying and resolving birth trauma right but i i yeah. get that there's a tiny proportion of the of the population who are resource to do that kind of work and so you know on the one hand of course it's unfortunate i had that birth experience but on the other very lucky to have the resources to do something about it it's quite remarkable how that earliest experience can really shape uh our lives so deeply mm. and um how the memory of those um of that experience even if it's nonverbal even if it's held in the cells is real like it 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 drives who we the possibilities that we perceive in our lives for who we can be you know yeah it's impressive and it makes yeah. sense yeah yeah i think uh, uh, that's right we, we 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 get a we get an imprint right we get a cellular imprint from those very early experiences that drive our beliefs our behaviors um, our compulsions, right. right. And it's all set up before we have any extreme extrinsic memory. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a job to, 
to to sort of uncover the those intrinsic memories, those cellular memories. It's quite possible to do it, but it's, it takes an investment. Yes. And then even further investment to kind of heal it, resolve it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, but an interesting, interesting to reflect on in even even within your circles, it's still, I guess, relatively fringe for people to be talking about the birth experience. Yes, I think uh, I think there's still a, a heavy emphasis on um, what we might call like single event trauma or adult trauma, or at least traumas that are remembered by the the patient. Um, but I have come, you know, on the basis of my own healing journey, uh, which also includes birth trauma and a very late uh, arrival at knowing that I had birth trauma, uh, that the birth trauma underlies um, quite a bit more than anybody has, well, except for these folks who have focused on it in their career, than uh, we account for. And, and even not just psychological suffering, but also uh, the, the tension, the cellular memory driving uh, inflammation and driving stress and driving uh, aging and, and the things that we don't even, it's like the, the fish in the water that can't, can't tell because this is the world that we live in and mm. our sense of self is embedded in that. So I, I think that it drives uh, a lot of what, what we, what we, think about um when we think about the the physiologic challenges of overcoming trauma yeah yeah and i think i think it's one of the main drivers i mean it's a hypothesis yeah this is absolutely a speculation but it, i i hypothesize that it that our medicalized birth experience in, especially in the west which is a long way from you know the sort of evolved birth experience so whilst it might have better outcomes in terms of survival I think it's, um, you know, that that kind of clinical environment, the bright lights, often we're separated immediately after birth. You know, there's so much that's um, potentially traumatic for, for, for babies when they're born in our you know, current birthing processes that I think that is a major, I hypothesize that's a major factor in the academic, epidemic of trauma, you know, we see in society at large. And then, of course, it gets compounded by childhood experiences, but that's a major, right. major driver, I suppose. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I didn't intend this to be quite so much about my my own traumatic experience, but yeah, it's probably worth highlighting. It's an important topic. Thanks for uh, receiving the question. Mm. Do you mind if I ask you another question? I'm very curious. Sure. Um, did you have your so you're in your your late twenties and you had just stopped uh, drinking, and uh, books are being passed around and you start exploring and did you have a, a therapist or someone who asked you about your birth and helped you to <clears throat> wonder about whether there was birth trauma or was that something that you actually there was already a narrative in your in your family of of hearing from your mother or you know from your parents that actually you know Richard's birth was really difficult uh, yeah. Um, so, so I, I don't know how I, but somehow I knew I was forceps delivery, but, but there was never a narrative that that was, that was, um, tra a, you know, associated with trauma. It was just, that's that we use forceps to get you out. Right. It wasn't like that was traumatic. 
Um, it was just part of the process. So that I didn't really have a narrative that I had a traumatic birth, but I, I did have an early therapist who, who was aware of the, of the idea of birth trauma, even though she didn't really work with her clients on birth trauma. But then what changed it for me was reading um, a book by Arthur Janoff called um, um, the, Biology of, uh, the Biology of Belief. But, but which talked to the point I was making earlier that, you know, these early cellular imprints from trauma actually drive, you know, right. beliefs that we might form mu mu much later. But actually, these are f reflections of our physiology at some level, our belief system, right. which is kind of an interesting idea, but, you know, and absolutely something I, you know, now believe to be true. Um, but, but in that book, he talks about, you know, patients who, who experience, you know, birth trauma and have relived some of that trauma in his, in his clinical work and the way that they kind of move into these altered states of writhing around on the floor and choking and right. And, um, and reliving the birth, right. As, but as right. adults. And, and so I, I read about these people doing this and, and I, I remembered that, you know, sometimes I had this weird thing where I kind of dribble and I'd be like, oh, maybe that's some kind of traumatic leak from something. And, and, and I, I found myself in the gym once and I just found myself starting to feel a bit odd. And like, mm -hmm. and I just thought, I'm going to just going to go with this. I don't know. And, and, and I ended up like in the Pilates studio, the top floor of this gym, like writhing around and, and banging wow. the floor and sweating profusely wow. and uh, choking and just having this full on you know, wow. experience. And somebody like came in and be like, is this the Pilates class? Like what's going on? And, like, and so they snapped me out of it. But I was like, yeah, something just, I didn't make that up. There's no way that was just like the result of auto suggestion. You know, wow. I could, I was sweating, right? I can't, I'm not an actor. I'm not that kind of actor. Something just happened that was real that my, and my intuition told me that's something related to my birth. And it was like, okay, that was, that was it. It was almost like, you know, that week I was like on the phone to the, the primal center and like book my ticket and like, okay, I'm going to go do this. Yeah. Wow, I, I love the trust that you had of, of feeling weird in the gym to go and permit, you know, give permission. Mm. Maybe it didn't feel like you had a choice, but it sounds like you made a decision. You made a choice of, Hey, I'm going to go yeah. up here. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm just going to kind of go with it. And, um, yeah, I had, a, I had a, there's a wonderful, I can't remember the name of the author, there's a book called Soul Shaping, and he has this phrase in this book called um, Weird Your Way to God, um, right? And I think <laughs> that's a, bit, a big part of my journey. Or you could say weird your way to healing. But it's, yeah. Just allow yeah. yourself to do the weird things um, if your intuition is telling you to do them. That has been, yeah, definitely part of mm. the success that I've had with trauma resolution and myself to be weird <laughs> great well yeah, i know but... you've got another another appointment uh will so i don't you know i don't want to keep you um but this has been a, a wonderful conversation um and it's and an remind pleasure thank you <laughs> and yeah and remind people yeah where they can go i know you offer a wealth of, of courses and i know that some of them are very accessible right different different price points and you know there's there's a there's a whole host sure. on, on your website so yeah can you tell people sure. about that thank you so the website is psychiatryinstitute.com so it's pretty simple all one word and um, 
you can find out about all the courses that we offer there. Uh, some of them are taught live and some are what we call asynchronous learning or, you know, recorded learning, um, ranging everything from uh, nutritional courses for mental health to how to provide ketamine uh, safety, safely and effectively to longer courses like an integrated medicine course for psychiatrists and nurse practitioners and or the psychedelic training that I mentioned uh, before that's a 10-month online, uh, mostly live training. Uh, so yeah, just psychiatryinstitute.com. And we also have a blog there that you can read more about some of the ways that we weave integrative medicine into mental health. And there's a podcast uh, that we, we run to, uh, to, to explore these um, topics more deeply. And it's all there on the front page of the website. So awesome. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. We'll definitely, yeah, and I will definitely put a link to, uh, to the website in the, in the notes. Fantastic. Well, thanks once again. Uh, awesome conversation. Um, Thank yeah, you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com. <laughs>